Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Zachary Wheeler, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Franz Osilia and Megan Rootguy. On this episode, we are joined by Dr. Scott Jasper to discuss Russian cyber operations. How do Russian cyber operations work? How effective are they for achieving Russia's geostrategic goals? And how should the U.S. respond? For even more information and case studies on Russian cyber interventions in foreign affairs, be sure to check out Dr. Jasper's new book, Russian Cyber Operations, Coding the Boundaries of Conflict. Dr. Jasper is a retired U.S. Navy captain and a lecturer at the National Security Affairs Department and the Institute for Security Government at the Naval Postgraduate School, specializing in defense strategy, hybrid warfare, and cyber policy. He's the author of numerous books, such as Russian Cyber Operations, Strategic Cyber Deterrence, Security Freedom in the Global Commons, and Transforming Defense Capabilities. He received his PhD from the University of Reading in the UK, and today we're very lucky to have him. Welcome, Dr. Jasper. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here today. I know that you've had an esteemed set of academics and practitioners on your production. I look forward to answering your questions and talking about Russian cyber operations. All right, fantastic. Let's jump right into the podcast. Megan, take us away. If you had to break down the central arguments of your book for our listeners, what would they be? Well, I would categorize these in uh, five items. Uh, The first would be the aspect that Russia has integrated cyber operations into novel forms of warfare to include asymmetric, hybrid, and information. And the second, that their actors are using legal and technical maneuvers to avoid meaningful consequences for those cyber operations. The third, that the Federation, the Russian Federation, is undermining or circumventing norms for responsible state behavior as it conducts cyber operations. And the fourth is that a U.S. whole government approach has done little to alter Moscow's behavior in this domain. And fifth, Therefore, the nation needs robust solutions for resilience to withstand future attacks. And um, Dr. Jasper, I remember reading in your book that there's a, there's a portion of your book that you mentioned that Russia just simply does not have the economic means to keep up with the conventional arsenal and military of the West. So given that scenario, um, what are Russia's strategic goals to try to protect in the international arena? And how are they using cyber operations to reach those goals instead of just conventional conventional weapons? Right. Uh, One of the arguments there when you start talking about economics and demographics is that the Russian Federation is in no position to wage a conventional war against the United States and NATO because of its limitations in those areas. Therefore, cyber means are a way to push back on the US and NATO and our allies and partners. Russia itself considers it to be a leading world power. This is articulated in the 2015 Russian Federation National Security Strategy, stating that Russia intends to consolidate its status as this world power. Russia sees the United States and NATO allies as a roadblock to achieving willpower status and respect the state deserves. Their 2016 foreign policy concept 
actually portrays a crisis in relations with the Western states from perceived containment and geopolitical expansion. Therefore, Russia attempts to weaken the West by cyber-enabled influence operations that sow discord and divide societies by aggravating contentious issues. The NATO alliance buildup of military forces near Russian borders is seen as a direct threat to its national security. In response, Russia seeks to restore a privileged sphere of influence over former Soviet nations on its periphery. Cyber operations, therefore, are used as a component of warfare in intervention operations, such as seen in Georgia and Ukraine, and to destabilize governments by disrupting critical infrastructure. Thank you. Dr. Jasper, um, in your first answer, you talked about the uh, ideas of Russian in terms of Russian cyber operations, asymmetric arsenal, hybrid warfare, and informational warfare or information warfare. Could you give our listeners a brief description of what exactly those mean? And then I think what would be really fascinating also is if you could touch on some of the case studies that you touch on in your book um, regarding these uh, different strategies, such as the asymmetric warfare in Estonia, Crimea, and then even the US 2016 elections. And you can take that apart as you want. We can follow up whatever works best for you, Dr. Jasper. <laughs> Great. Well, that seems to be uh, three sections or uh, three cases uh, with a two-part answer. So, uh, sure, this is fun. I'll start with the idea of uh, asymmetric warfare and the Estonia case. So the term asymmetry in warfare denotes the use of some sort of difference to gain an advantage of an adversary. One acts, organizes, thinks differently from opponents to maximize one's strengths and exploit, exploit their weaknesses. An asymmetric approach, advanced technologies for military functions offer decisive advantage in the context of hostilities. And Russia has used uh, these sort of conventional weapons in places such as Syria with applications of missile technology for multiple domains, such as the air, the sea, and even subsea platforms. When we think of cyberspace, advances in technologies for cyber operations can be used to obtain political advantage, also short of armed conflict. So a couple cases that I put in the book under this category is the Georgian conflict, where Russia integrated cyber operations as a component of warfare, and also in the Estonia protests, as you asked, where Russia used cyber operations as a method of coercion. So looking at the Estonia case, uh, a cyber onslaught occurred during the months of April and May 2017. It was actually based on a protest that began in the streets over the relocation of a Soviet war memorial from the center of Tallinn to a cemetery on the outskirts of the capital. The rioting progressed into cyberspace on the third day of the protest. Over four weeks, waves of DDoS attacks swamped banks, ministries, newspaper, and broadcaster websites. Large botnets hit these sites with bogus requests for information. In fact, at its peak, more than 1 million computers created data requests equivalent to 5,000 clicks per second on these targets. Banks were hit really hard, especially Hannes Bank, largest bank in Estonia, who suffered customer outages for hours. Hackers also infiltrated to face websites while posting their own messages. So the attackers were actually crowds. And these crowds were nationalist uh, hackers that we call them. They're affected by political emotions. They carried out the attacks 
according to Russian hacker sites and internet forums, combined with the use, in some cases, of criminal botnets. Of course, Russia denied any involvement in the attack itself. At the end of the attack, after the four weeks, uh, yes, there were effects on public and private targets, but they did not achieve their larger goal. For after all the disruptions, and after they finally ended, the bronze statue remained in the cemetery on the outskirts of town. Are there any questions on a cemetery or Estonia before I proceed to the second question? Yeah, Dr. Jasper, I'm wondering if you could define um, DDoS or direct denial of service um, for our audience. What? So, I mean, I guess maybe talk about... I don't. I guess I don't want to get too technical, but this is a pretty simple tactic, right? And it's interesting to me how much damage it causes being so simple. Um, could you talk a little bit about what exactly that does and why that kind of crippled Estonia in that case? Right. So in the case of Estonia, the DDoS attacks were volumetric. In other words, as I stated, they generated a large amount of traffic. And um, what we've seen in the space is that DDoS attacks have intensified uh, over uh, the last, uh, really, 10 to 15 years. I mean, we're talking 2007. These attacks were pretty rudimentary. Uh, The initial attacks by the hackers were nothing but ping attacks. Uh, And so their volume was pretty low. And they didn't have a lot of effect. And that only lasted about a day or two before the botnets kind of emerged. And those botnets are collections of compromised computers. Uh, so as I mentioned, there were you know, uh, up to a million or so of these compromised computers that had been collected by criminals in a bot, a, a network of computers, compromised computers. It's amazing. Uh, a lot of our, com- our commuter- computers at home uh, can be compromised. If you run software on your machine and you see Trojans and so forth on your home computer, uh, you might not be aware that it is a member of a bot. But what we've seen over time is that actors in the domain are using larger servers and servers that have more capacity in order to generate larger attacks. So we're moving from gigabit type attacks to terabit attacks. And uh, we're using large servers and some innovative techniques like reflection application in order to get to uh, one and a half terabits as as an example of an attack. Most recently, this attack called Memcatch, using Memcatch servers achieved those levels. So Estonia was just the beginning of a challenge that we're still seeing today that's amplified that we're working to defeat uh, with security vendors. Fantastic, Dr. Jasper. It's really interesting. I I've read a ton of different books on in terms of cyber warfare, and it's always been an interesting case to me, the Estonia um, Russian cyber operation case. Do you mind moving on to um, the the case study of Crimea and discussing hybrid warfare? Right. So hybrid in military affairs implies the coordinated and combined use of variants of warfare. Uh, Russia actually doesn't formally recognize what is a Western concept for hybrid warfare. Uh, although the term does exist in Gibanaya Voina, that I explain in detail uh, in the book. Uh, what we have seen, though, is that we've seen speeches by senior generals in Russia that parallel some aspects of the Western interpretation of hybrid warfare. For example, General Gersimov, uh, the chief of the general staff in 
a speech in 2016 for the Academy of Military Sciences said, quote, in military conflicts, the methods of struggle are increasingly shifting toward an integrated application of political, economic, information, and other non-military measures implemented with reliance on military force. These are the so-called hybrid methods. Gear Seamoff had actually described this in 2013 in an article that's well known. And that article was used in the West to try to explain what happened in Crimea using these uh, non-military measures, uh, predominantly, as Gary Simov had described, with a ratio of four to one over military methods. This was used in the West to explain how Russia's approach had differed from less previous, previous less successful wars in Chechnya and Georgia. As I mentioned, Georgia, Georgia is really just a military operation, a ground uh, force invasion, also from the sea, uh, that used cyber in DDoS, as I explain in the book. So what we saw in Crimea was almost a textbook application of this term hybrid warfare, the use of all those instruments, including information confrontation measures and actions of special forces. And those were coined the little green men by the United States, or in Russia, they call them the polite people. But we did see information confrontation in every phase of the operation, creating both technical and psychological effects. For instance, one of the most notable was toward the end of what you could call the reestablishment of peace uh, during the Ukrainian presidential election. Uh, the Russian affiliated, affiliated group Hyper, Cyber Briquette compromised the Central Election Commission and disabled real-time updates in the vote count, a technical effect, and then posted an opposition candidate as the winner moments before the polls closed generating a psychological effect. Any questions? That's, yeah, no, that's that's um, one of the things that has interesting mo interest, interest me the most about Russian defense policy in the past, because as you mentioned early, earlier, they seem um, incapable of catching up with the West in terms of conventional, so they have to resort to a more hybrid, as you say in the book, method of warfare that includes not only information, but electrical, and um, and cyber as well. Now, I I'd like to move on a little bit to information warfare because um, and specifically the case study of the U.S. 2016 elections because it is the one that unfortunately hits closer to home um, for many Americans. Right, and uh, what you're describing is really military doctrine, and I do uh, allude to that in the book. Uh, really, as early as 2010, the military doctrine, Russia was already thinking this way about indirect means. And they amplified that in their later version of the doctrine, I think around 2014, 2015. Uh, and in that regard, they emphasize information warfare. So how does Russia define information warfare? Well, official Ministry of Defense definitions are the ability to undermine political, economic and social systems. That's a piece of a long definition, I should say. So in this case, uh, information is seen as a weapon, okay? And warfare itself seeks to uh, steal, plant, interdict, manipulate, distort, or destroy information. So the, the practice of information warfare, what we see today is just nothing more than tools of influence with a new embrace of modern technology. A lot of scholars, um, 
point to the Cold War and what Soviet intelligence services did. And as they concentrate on subversion using methods known as active measures, uh, that term active measures is actually even used in the most recent uh, series of reports uh, by Congress on what happened in 2016. The title is active measures. And I think that's because uh, the main subcategory of active measures is disinformation, uh, which in Soviet technologies is defined as a carefully constructed false message, secretly introducing the opponent's communication system to deceive his decision-making or public opinion. And that fits quite well to the Russian influence campaign during the 2016 U.S. presidential election, as you asked about. Here, uh, the Russians leveraged social media to spread disinformation. They aimed to stoke emotions on decisive issues, such as immigration, gun rights, in order to pit Americans against one another uh, politically and in the polls. Trolls used election-related hashtags, such as hashtag Hillary for prison and hashtag Magna, and accounts like at 10 for Tennessee, underlined GOP. Uh, which was nothing more than an IRA, uh, the Internet Research Agency, most successful pages on Twitter. Meanwhile, Russian mass media, specifically RT and Sputnik, spread propaganda to subvert reality with what are called alternatives to truth, other notions to fabricate uh, belief in plausible alternatives to truth. For instance, they had a video that I found was fascinating that said how 100% of the Clinton's 2015 charity went to themselves. That video was broadcast on Facebook and had 10 million views. So obviously that sort of message can convince voters of how to think about the candidates in the election. In addition, two state-sponsored groups, Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear, broke into the DNC. This is the one you hear a lot about, the Democratic National Committee. In the book, I talk extensively about their tactics for intrusion, what they did, how they bounced from another target into the DNC using very innovative means. And the result of those intrusions was stealing, as you might remember, uh, emails, documents from the DNC itself. And those were then released to the public. Right away, uh, WikiLeaks dumped uh, well, uh, right away, those were released by DC leaks, excuse me. And then in late July 2016, uh, WikiLeaks dumped 20,000 emails from top DNC officials days before the Democratic National Convention. And those emails revered, revealed irritation with the Bernie Sanders campaign, which uh, stoked protests during the convention and disrupted the proceedings throughout the week. Questions? Dr. Jasper, I'm I, to me, information warfare is fascinating because of the amount of things that Russian information warfare puts out for seemingly no reason. Um, one of the things that I've seen recently, I, I think, has been interesting is Russian information warfare in terms of 5G wireless. I'm wondering if you know anything about that kind of campaign over, you know, We've seen things everywhere about 5G wireless, you know, spraying cancer and all that kind of thing. Um, and my understanding of that is a lot of it does come from Russian information warfare. Can you speak to that a little bit? That's a great question. 
and really it just shows a pattern is what you're describing there of uh, trying to present uh, viewpoints that stoke some sort of panic uh, that, again, the intent is to weaken the West. Uh, so if we, the United States and Europe, you know, intend to move forward with 5G networks, obviously there could be great benefits to society. So uh, saying something like, uh, they will create cancer, then undermines uh, the intent of the advantage of a 5G network. And maybe Russia would say, for instance, be behind in that sort of technology. So maybe its own domestic audience uh, would perceive that uh, that's not advantageous because this could be the result. So without getting into you know the, the nuts and bolts of 5G and the description, this is just a pattern is what we're seeing. So when you look at, for example, today, uh, the COVID crisis, you see Russia pushing disinformation uh, repeatedly in many directions about the COVID crisis. Uh, for example, uh, they're saying that, uh, you know, items like Bill Gates, who's run a foundation, the vaccine to, to try to uh, help uh, vac uh, issue vaccines in other parts of of the world uh, in order to prevent against other sorts of uh, diseases, that that could be a mechanism to spread COVID uh, as an example. Uh, so it, when you have something like that, what you're looking at is meaningful uh, initiatives, the United States and some of our industry partners or private sector might put forward, uh, could spark fear that this would result in actually infection, uh, not of, say, COVID versus preventing COVID. For example, maybe you get the vaccine, and with the vaccine, uh, you get the actual disease. Uh, and uh, so this is what Russia does. And uh, so any of these initiatives, whether it be 5G or, or anything else in that regard, in order to help society, uh, Russia's going to push back, and they're going to come up with an alternative to truth. Fascinating. Thanks, Dr. Jasper. All right. Um, so given this outline of how Russia uses cyber attacks against other countries, you know, using, asymmetric, uh, using it in asymmetric warfare, in hybrid warfare, and in information warfare as part of their military doctrine, why have other countries and international institutions found it so difficult to impose consequences on Russia? I know that you talk about in your book about how Russia is just really good at using uncertainty, uh, there's a quote, uncertainty in technical attribution and ambigu ambiguity in legal classification to elude repercussions. So could you explain uh, that phrase to our listeners and just further expand on how Russia um, just is able to continue to, to breach international norms? Right. Well, um, it's all about interpretations when you start talking about legal uh, regimes and the ambiguity uh, in how do you classify uh, a cyber operation. So what Russia is doing is taking advantage of that ambiguity. And it really starts with what's an armed attack, which gives states the right to use force and self-defense under Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations. So how do you define an armed attack? Well, the Talon Manual 2.0, which is produced uh, from the uh, Cyber Center of Excellence in Tallinn, 
through legal experts. Uh, it describes an armed attack in terms of scale and effects of a cyber operation. And it talks about how if you seriously injure or kill a number of persons, cause significant damage, destruction of property, that could satisfy scale and effects. But even in listening to how I just described that, where are the thresholds in those statements? What does seriously mean? What does significant mean? Can I put that in numbers? Can I put that in value, like dollars? Um, so it's very challenging for our allies to try to understand where are those thresholds. And therefore, what Russia does is push up against the threshold themselves. And every attack, everything they do stretches the threshold further. So that it's more difficult, not easier to set lines that you could then respond with force. And even some of the other interpretations of international law, like that are below an armed attack, such as an internationally wrongful act, which is well recognized in, as a legal regime. There's conditions for that. First, it has to be an international, a breach of a legal obligation. And second, it has to be attributable to the state. The breach is difficult. It could be something like sovereignty, intervention, use of force. But all of those have challenges in interpretation. And in the book, I give cases and describe where some of those challenges fit in what Russia has done and how states have a difficult, uh, uh, how it's difficult for them to, to interpret those thresholds. And that second condition of attribution is even harder because it's very clear when a state organ, like a military intelligence agency, commits an, a wrongful act. However, if it's a group, it has to be attributable to the state. So in many cases, what Russia is doing, again, is using proxies for their operations and trying to avoid attribution to the actual state. The United States and our allies are starting to see through that, and we're now accusing more the Russian military of the attack, such as we did in NotPetya and accusing the GRU of conducting that attack. But uh, in the past, Russia has been able to hide behind that, especially in using patriotic hackers. The other aspect I go into detail in the book is the technical means. And I use three categories, intrusion, evasion, deception, all those to avoid attribution. Russia has many sophisticated ways, for example, to break into a network. In the bad rabbit attack of 2017, when visitors went to a Russian language media website, they fell for a fake pop-up to update the Adobe system multimedia flash product. When they clicked on that, malware entered their computers. The Russians, once they're inside a computer, will use sophisticated techniques for evasion. Uh, they'll use what's called fileless attacks that are difficult to detect by antivirus. I talk about that a lot in the book, using stolen credentials, legitimate processes that run on operating systems. And finally, for deceptions, the Russians attempt to mislead, misdirect, or misattribute. For example, in 2018 Winter Olympics, Russian hackers uh, from the main intelligence director, the GRU, uh, used North Korean IP addresses to make an attack look like the work of North Korean hackers, uh, diverting blame for the attack. So Russian is adept at all of these methods, and they use these methods to maintain uncertainty, uncertainty in legal uh, 
classifications that would prevent then robust responses uh, by the United States, NATO, and our partners. Well, wow, thank you. Um, you've described how Russia exploits this gray area to go farther and farther with their cyber attacks while still not going too far, you know, to avoid triggering countries into punishing Russia. This said, you know, given Russia's cyber attacks that really do cause damage, how has the U.S. government responded to Russian cyber attacks in the past, and why have these U.S. responses, um, in your view, you know, been ineffective or not effective enough? Right. So the U.S. government has used a whole government approach. Um, when you look at our strategies, our, testim- uh, our testimonies, and so forth, uh, you see that resonate. The use of all instruments of power. And that really expands then to the methods uh, in those instruments. So when I'm looking at, for example, the U.S. Treasury, then the Treasury can impose sanctions. When I look at our Justice Department, they can issue indictments, as example. Our State Department maybe can close facilities or expel diplomats, as an example. So the United States has used all of that. Uh, And we did that right after the 2016 presidential election. Uh, But the challenges are Russia almost just laughs at these sort of things uh, and doesn't really believe they have a true effect. In fact, in 2018, the Department of Justice indicted GRU officers uh, and also the IRA for interfering with the 2016 presidential election in two separate indictments specifying by name individuals. But when President Putin was presented by Chris Wallace in an interview of July 2018, a copy of the indictment and attempted to hand it to him on TV, uh, Putin just brushed it away and laughed and said that Russia does not interfere in in elections. Uh, This is, uh, uh, there's no evidence of that. And that's part of the problem. We don't really present evidence. Uh, because we, of course, can't reveal our methods of collecting evidence. So we can indict, for example, uh, officers and officials in the Russian government uh, or agencies for their conduct, but they're never going to leave Russia. Russia's never going to hand them over to us. In fact, in the past, uh, when we indicted Russian hackers for the Yahoo breach, you might recall, in the 2014-2015 timeframe, Russia did nothing but recruit one of those hackers into their intelligence services. So the measures the United States are using just don't have a large effect on Russia. And even if they do have a large effect, they can be counterproductive. For example, we put sanctions on Russian oligarchs uh, in April 2018 for their role in malicious cyber activities. We froze their assets and prohibited U.S. persons from dealing with them. There was a large impact on Russian stocks and currency. But guess what? Uh, Those Russian oligarchs own international companies. And for some case, for example, one of the oligarchs owned Rusal, the second largest producer of aluminum in the world. And what happened? Well, prices soared. Companies started going out of business. And who did that affect? Well, the United States, our own industries. So what did the Trump administration do? They pulled back on those sanctions. And all that Putin said after that in a public 
statement, he says, the methods of pressure used by other countries are, quote, ineffective, counterproductive, and harmful to all. And the United States, uh, unfortunately, proved that in our actions. So, Dr. Dr. Jasper, if sanctions, indictments, naming and shaming, if, if Russia really doesn't care about any of these things that we're doing and continues to do cyber operations as they have in the past, what is a better U.S. strategy? And I know you talk about this in the book, but if you could spend on that now, that would be fantastic for our listeners. Great. So, you know, what we've progressed to is really that last instrument of power that I did not mention. And uh, that's the military, right? Uh, that's, I believe, where you're heading. So uh, the U.S. military has changed our strategy of now persistent engagement using a new concept called Defend Ford. And when you think of Ford, that means in adversary cyber territory. So the U.S. military does this today, right, in other domains of warfare. We have our ships, for example, stationed all around the world. And there are patrolling off the shores of some of our potential adversaries, such as China in the South China Sea. So now what we've done is we've moved the U.S. military in cyberspace into territory of our potential adversaries in this new strategy. The intent is to expose adversary weaknesses, learn their intentions, capabilities, and counterattacks close to their origins. And this sort of approach is described in our latest 2018 Department of Defense cyber strategy. You can find the eight-page unclassified version easily on the internet. Also, uh, the use of the strategy has been authorized by Congress in the FY19 National Defense Authorization Act, where now actions in cyberspace that do not rise to acts of war are categorized as traditional military activity, and the Trump administration issued policy guidance in a new national security presidential memorandum number 13 in order to facilitate the use of military operations. So we've seen a public display of this in that Cyber Command created a Russia small group task force to detect the 2018 U.S. midterm elections from foreign interference. The group targeted Russian trolls uh, working for the Internet Research Agency. And what Cyber Command did was sent those trolls emails, pop-ups, texts, direct messages, and told them they were being identified were tracking that work, which was, in effect, a threat that they could be singled out and in some way either indicted or sanctions put upon them, which, again, have not had a great effect. However, trying to reduce some fear, some cost, uh, in their work. But the trolls persisted. On election day, for a few days after the vote count, Cyber Command went ahead and took agency servers offline by blocking internet access. The challenge here in the new concept is that Cyber Command has a lot of capability, but in order to follow international law, uh, their intentions would be to keep these activities below the level of armed conflict. And that would also avoid any escalation. And in doing such, you're going to see maybe actions that are not very forceful, and that could minimize their effect in achieving the desired results, which is to change Russian behavior. Are you-
Yeah, so I don't have a I don't have a quick question because I wanna I wanna bring this platform to our listeners, uh, especially given what's happening in the news right now with the with the George Floyd protests. Um, how is how are Russian actors uh, like reacting to the protests right now, or maybe inciting further agitation as well? Um, are they are, is there evidence that we're seeing about foreign interference in in, in this process? Uh, well, uh, Susan Rice, you probably saw on uh, TV a couple of days ago, you know, blame Russia for some of this. Uh, and there was actually some pushback from what little I could uh, in reaction to that comment. Uh, you know, the, the process today without uh, diving into uh, the root cause of those has obviously uh, been uh, festering in the United States, unfortunately, for years. And maybe it's erupted. Uh, but Russia definitely will take advantage of any seam in uh, the preparedness of the United States to uh, react to this sort of uh, outburst and the situation in the United States. So uh, I haven't seen yet any reports of trolls amplifying messages. Uh, as I was alluding to earlier, the COVID crisis, the trolls have been pushing their own narrative. Uh, I talked about Gates. Uh, they've been pushing other narratives, like, for example, that the U.S. created the vaccine. And uh, we did this in bio labs. And we did this in bio labs in places such as Ukraine and Georgia. So uh, the Russia will take advantage of any crisis to push their version and they'll amplify. And one of the things that I've actually been looking for is the early indications on a 2020 election. You know, what is Russia doing? in maybe setting up some early accounts and amplifying voices to the election. Uh, now, uh, Facebook has taken down, especially in October, a lot of sites, for instance, and Russia is rebuilding those uh, sites now in order to prepare for the election interference. The question I'm hearing from you would be, can Russia use some of those sites today that maybe would amplify divisive positions to just stoke uh, anger and uh, around the riots. They could be. There's no doubt in any direction. Uh, haven't seen the evidence yet. Maybe that will emerge in the next in the coming weeks by those trackers uh, that that look for that. Uh, the question will be: Does Russia need to do that? Uh, because obviously, there's other factions at play here that are taking advantage of the crisis in the streets uh, for their own agenda. Maybe Russia doesn't have to amplify because others will just do it for them and save their positioning for the election. And that's probably an important point is that in any kind of cyber operation, uh, you have to position your assets, right? You have to uh, hack into the network. You have to establish the pages uh, in order to act. Russia is very good at that. They've broken in the critical infrastructure in the United States uh, in order to position to potentially damage our critical infrastructure. There's a report uh, just a couple of days ago about uh, in Germany that uh, uh, Berserk Bear, also Energetic Bear, which broke into the 2018 in 2018 in the U.S. networks, critical infrastructure has now been found in Germany in their critical infrastructure. So Russia will position itself. 
for whatever purpose? So great question. I'm kind of looking for that also. Uh, but guess what? Uh, Russia will definitely do it if they can. Uh, the question is, do they want to spoil it, right? Do they want to spoil their use and be detected? Or do they want to save that? And guess what? 2016, 2020 election is coming pretty quick, right? And uh, there's no doubt they're going to want to interfere in that. Towards the very beginning of this, we talked about Russia's long-term strategic goals, especially Russia's plan or intention to consolidate its power as a global superpower. Would you say that Russian cyber operations, which it's using, um, would you say that Russian cyber operations are fulfilling this long-term strategic goal? Um, in some ways, Russia seems to have been very you know, successful, as you've described, with information warfare and hacking into critical infrastructure. But then maybe in other ways, you know, maybe that Russia's cyber attacks inspired a backlash, um, especially you know, with Russian cyber operations and military incursions in Ukraine, Georgia, and the Baltic states, potentially pushing those states maybe farther away from Russia and closer to NATO's sphere of influence. So on net... Would you say that um, Russia's cyber operations are fulfilling their goal of becoming a superpower? Right. So if you want to become in Russia uh, a superpower, you, uh, what do you do? Well, you just diminish the status of your competitors. Uh, and that means confronting the West and in particular the United States, as we've been talking about here so far. And any opportunity possible, okay? And uh, the other competitor in uh, competition, global power competition, that's well-documented, of course, is China. And China uh, has uh, received uh, a lot of attention for what it's doing. Uh, And in fact, there's an article in New York Times that I just started looking at the day about global competition continues, and it starts with talking about China in all domains, what China's doing right now, uh, not just in disinformation, but also in the military, uh, in places such as the South China Sea, uh, basically uh, continuing to advance its foothold on the islands as an example during the crisis. So you diminish the, the status of your competitors and that's undermining their governments and you portray those governments as ineffective. And what's happening in the United States with these uh, riots, these protests, uh, once again, uh, shows the inability of the government to uh, control the situation and to present an alternative at the heart, the cause of the situation itself, uh, which is, of course, very sad. So Russia benefits from confronting the West, uh, as does China, I will allude to. And it's doing the same on its periphery. Uh, It's exerting political, economic, military pressure on the buffer states. Uh, And that includes Ukraine and Georgia. And the ultimate goal there is to prevent Euro-Atlantic integration. And it's doing that by continuing to establish, for instance, in the Donbass region, uh, an ongoing conflict by supporting uh, overtly or covertly the separatists and maintaining uh, the, the combat actions, uh, Ukraine will not be able to join NATO with that sort of unrest inside its territory. So Russia is achieving a longer term goal in doing that. 
in cyber operations such as NotPetya, which was intended to destabilize Ukraine, or even the attacks on Georgia only October 2019, some six to eight months ago, large DDoS defacement attacks on Georgia. Once again, reminds you that Russia intends to intervene in any sort of stability in the country. Uh, so those states uh, are a long way from joining NATO. Now, public opinion, as you're alluding to, uh, that could be shifting uh, inside the country. Uh, but again, there's quite a bit of nationalist view in the Baltics, uh, a percentage of the populations. It depends uh, anywhere from 15 to 25% that have Russian uh, affiliations. Uh, and of course, in the separatist regions, the Donbass or uh, uh, South Ossetia, uh, as an example, there's quite a bit of Russian influence, right? And uh, so, sure, you know, Russia could be in some way isolating itself from some of the population, but uh, they're achieving their longer term goal. And what's the United States doing? Well, uh, we're just kind of uh, forgiving them for it. Right. You know, uh, we continue to name and shame them. But again, uh, we haven't been very forceful in our measures. And uh, uh, and if nothing else, you know, we're kind of moving away from the idea of sanctions and so forth from a larger stance. Uh, and the President uh, Trump's uh, stance on Russia is, of course, uh, uh, assisting in that. So I think they are achieving a long term goal. And that goal, again, uh, create discord, chaos, panic, or fear. And again, Russia really has no reason to stop any of these actions, including cyber operations. Well, Dr. Jasper, I think it's definitely pretty ominous that uh, you would say that Russia is achieving its its long-term strategic goals of, of sowing chaos, and especially the fact that the United States is really not doing anything to stop it. So I think that's a good place to leave our listeners off today. And we want to thank you from the Hopkins Podcast of Foreign Affairs for coming on today. Well, I, I thank you for the opportunity. Um, I will say we're doing a lot. It's just not, again, uh, because I support uh, all of our efforts uh, for our my partners and the State Department and Justice. Uh, but I think it's a good way to finish in that we're not doing enough. And uh, when you read the book, uh, the last thing I'll say is I do talk about uh, defenses and how we need to install uh, more robust defenses, uh, which we haven't had a, a, a chance to talk about in a limited time a day. But for those of your readers that choose to purchase the book, uh, you can look more at various technologies and so forth to stop some of these attacks, uh, taking matters more into our own hands uh, in society uh, and our government just to prevent the attack itself. So uh, thank you for today, the opportunity. It's definitely been uh, uh, a joy to talk about something I'm passionate about that I think is important today to understand. Appreciate it all. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins P-O-F-A on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to get the latest and greatest of Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs content. We'll see you next time.